I had a pastor in Tennessee who who was uh, known for saying there are two kinds of people in the world. People in counseling and people who need to be in counseling. <laughs> and I've been both. And after being in counseling, I wish I hadn't waited so long. But after the day we had yesterday, I thought uh, I really needed some counseling. Um, have you ever heard of the McKnight curse? <laughs> Sorry, Chris, if you ever watched this. But we, we joke with Chris that it seems like everything they do just kind of gets really complicated. And uh, that's been our life recently. And, you know, I can't help but think that it's, it's God's way of refining our silver or gold. But uh, a few months ago, uh, we, have, we misplaced Melissa's set. I, I say we. It was her. But um, <laughs> it, was prob- it was probably Wyatt. But her, her car keys, her van keys. Uh, so if, if you find a set of keys with a Volkswagen and Honda clicker, it's ours. Bring them, bring them back. We no questions asked. Um, so we've been using my key to the van, and I don't have a clicker. Um, so we just use the one cylinder in the driver's side door. I don't know why they decided to only put one cylinder in that uh, in that van, but they did, and it's been stuck lately. And you know, you can usually kind of fiddle with it, and it'll go. Well, it didn't go yesterday. In the parking lot at Walmart, it didn't go. So Melissa called uh, roadside assistance, and the tow truck came and jimmied the lock with the Slim Jim and set off the alarm. (laughs) And uh, so van sitting at home with uh, the battery disconnected so that it won't keep flashing the lights and honking the horn. and, And so it was all in the midst of this busy day, this busy weekend, uh, but uh, anyway, here we are. <laughs> you heard that song, uh, One Day at a Time, Sweet Jesus. I was singing One Thing at a Time, Sweet Jesus. <laughs> but, uh, you know, recent Barna research shows that four in ten American adults have seen a counselor at some point in their lives. And another 36% say that they're open to seeing a counselor. Uh, of those who have seen a counselor, 39% were referred by a doctor, 19 were referred, 19% were referred by family or friends, and 3% sought counseling through their local church. And that's a statistic that, by God's grace, we're hoping to change for the better. Uh, there is a, an enormous value in biblical counseling, um, and we have a team of really good counselors uh, here at Kerrville Bible Church. Um, 46% report that affordability was the most important factor in choosing a counselor, followed by specialization, experience, positive personal reviews, and proximity or convenience. And 30% report that they began counseling because of a doctor's recommendation. Down the list of reasons people begin counseling are trauma, including loss of a loved one, job loss, disease, divorce, and so on. There's also treatment of mental illness, 
uh, life transition like marriage, moving, starting a new job, having a child, etc., and marriage trials. 4% sought counseling based on a pastor's recommendation, and that's uh, also the same percentage as those who were required to participate in premarital counseling. 47% of those who have seen or currently see a counselor report that their experience has been very positive, 29% somewhat positive, 17% neutral, 5% somewhat negative, and 1% very negative. In the time that we have together today, I want to encourage you that if you belong to Christ, he has called you to personal ministry, to sharing the truth in love with those who need to hear it, which is everyone. I also want to commend to you the one whom the Bible refers to as the wonderful counselor, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's read this lengthy passage from John chapter 11 together. And I want to give you four characteristics that make Jesus the wonderful counselor. Three of these characteristics can be shared with professional, pastoral, and personal counselors. But one of these characteristics sets Jesus apart as entirely unique. So read along with me as I read. John chapter 11. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the, is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after, he said, then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of the sleep. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go also, so that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to, Mar- to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore... When she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. 
And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. And when she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came to where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of him who was blind have kept this man also from dying? So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and the stone was lying against it. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I pray that you would open our eyes to uh, the beauty of your word, that you, by your spirit, would interpret your word to our hearts and would um, enlighten our hearts to receive the Christ whom you have sent. In, in his name we pray. Amen. So the four characteristics of a wonderful counselor. The first one, Jesus loves people. Back to verse 3, says, He whom you love is sick. This word for love is phileo, brotherly affection or friendship. Jesus had a kinship with Lazarus and a bond of brotherhood. That's what I was talking about earlier with our, our baseball outing. It's intended to grow our phileo with one another, our brotherly delight in one another. This word phileo would seem to indicate that Jesus enjoyed what Aristotle referred to as a friendship of pleasure, the one where he truly delighted in the company of the other person. Verse 5 also says Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. And this word is agape, or godly affection, or unconditional love. This transcends and persists regardless of circumstances. It goes beyond mere emotion. 
and seeks the best for others. It seeks others' highest good. Scripture gives us a little insight into the backgrounds of Martha and Mary, but very little into the background of Lazarus besides what has already been shared. But Mary is mentioned in Matthew 26, John 12, and Mark 14 as the one who lavishly broke open an expensive bottle of ointment and poured its contents on Jesus' feet and dried his feet with her hair. This was an extravagant act of worship. And Jesus commended her as having prepared him for his crucifixion and burial. Martha and Mary are both mentioned in a passage in Luke 10. A woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. This is in uh, verse 38. Verse 39, she had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations. And she came to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me alone to do all the serving? Then tell her to help me. Sounds like my house when it's time to do the dishes. But the Lord answered her and said, Martha, Martha, you were worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. And Mary has chosen the good part. He says, Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. So we see from this text that Martha is a worker and Mary is a worshiper. There's a lot that we don't know about Martha and Mary and Lazarus, but what we do know is that Jesus loved them. A counselor must have a godly desire for the good of the person that he or she is counseling. Must, you must have genuine care for the person. You know, counseling has been called a form of evangelism or disciple-making, telling forth the good news of Christ and calling others to obedience. But we must care about the person as a fellow image-bearer. Must care. We must care about the eternal condition of their souls. You know, every person you come across in your daily life is going to spend eternity in either heaven or hell. There is no in-between. So the question is, do we care? If you remember back to when we completed our spiritual self-evaluation, I think, I think you, you remember this. We, we scored lowest in the witness category, in our loving, being a loving witness to Christ. And I can't help but wonder if it's because we don't truly love others as much as our own convenience or comfort. And, you know, I'm as guilty about this as anyone But a church that lags in fulfilling the great commission of making disciples is also struggling in the great commandment to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Penn Jillette, I don't know how many pastors quote Penn Jillette, a known atheist in their sermons, but... Here we go. He's the speaking half of the magical comedy duo of Penn and Teller. And he had this to say about proselytizing, and it's very pointed and convicting. He says, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. This is witnessing or evangelism or or disciple-making, proselytizing. He said, I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and that people could be going to hell and not getting eternal life... And you think it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward? 
How much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? How much do you have to hate someone to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe the truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I'm going to tackle you. And this is more important than that. The famous English preacher Charles Spurgeon put it this way, If sinners be damned, let them at least leap to hell over our dead bodies. If they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled with the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. Do we love people like Jesus? A wonderful counselor must have a deep love for people. The second characteristic of a second characteristic of a wonderful counselor, Jesus told the truth. Jesus told the truth. Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick. In all likeliness, Lazarus had died by the time Jesus received the news, but he decided to stay where he was for two more days. On the way, he told the disciples that Lazarus was dead and that he was glad for their sakes, but he wasn't there to heal him. We'll see why in a few minutes. So reading verse 17, from 17 again to 28. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had, not, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, I know he'll rise again at the last day. But Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the son of God, even he who comes into the world. And when she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and calling for you. And when she had heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Scripture says that Jesus came to console Martha and Mary concerning their brother. Martha comes and says to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And even now I know that whatever you ask God, God will give you. She knew, she knew that Jesus could raise Lazarus. He had raised the dead before. He'd raised the widow's son. That's in Luke 7. And news spread throughout Judea, the scripture says. He'd raised the daughter of Jairus, the synagogue leader. You know, news of someone raising the dead doesn't stay quiet. It, that kind of news spreads quickly, even before the internet and 24-hour news. So when she says that, she knows that he's raised the dead before, he can do it again, and Jesus meets her statement with one of his own. He says, your brother will rise again. Don Carson calls this statement a masterpiece of planned ambiguity. Is he speaking of an ultimate resurrection at the last time or an immediate resurrection? Martha understands it as the former. She replies that she shares 
a belief in the ultimate resurrection of believers to eternal life. You know, even the Old Testament saints had a belief in a bodily resurrection. Uh, in Job 19, he's, Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God. So she had this understanding that there is a bodily resurrection. But Jesus' statement, his next statement indicates that he means both ultimate and immediate resurrection. He says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Jesus declares to her that he alone has the power over life and death. He declares to her that there is a greater reality at stake than the death of her brother, and he is that reality. He tries to move her away from abstract belief into personal trust in him, and he is the only one worthy of trust. He is the only one worthy of her heart's affection. He declares that he alone is sovereign. He does this because Martha needs to hear the truth for her heart. She's practical. She's matter of fact. She needed to know and trust that Jesus was her only hope in life and death. Jesus met Martha with the truth. Namely, he met her with the truth about himself. As counselors and evangelists, we need to be ready to speak the truth in love. Specifically, this means we need to speak the truth of the gospel. Many people believe that biblical counseling means having a Bible verse for every problem. Oh, you're angry? Boom! There's a Bible verse for that. You're struggling with disobedient children? Boom! There's a Bible verse for that. You're addicted to pornography or gambling or drinking? Boom! There's a Bible verse for that. Now go and sin no more. This is an incorrect use of the Bible. Paul Tripp, in Instruments in the Redeemer's Hand, says that need-driven, self-focused, solution-defined ministry may use the Bible, but is not truly biblical. Need-driven, self-focused, solution-defined ministry may use the Bible, but it is not truly biblical. The Bible was not written as an encyclopedia of advice. It's news. It's good news. It's the very best news. It's good news because our problem is not anger or disobedient children or pornography or gambling or drinking or whatever. Our biggest problem is not a plurality of sins, but the condition of being sinful. The condition of being by our very nature, God's enemy. Pulling verses out of context makes us the hero of the Bible. The gospel is the news that we have a redeemer who came to make an end of our sin and not just to teach us how to live. The Bible won't be used out of context, not for long, not faithfully. The Bible comes to show us that we can't possibly live up to its standard. But there is one who did and one who died for us because we can't. Speaking the truth in love from the whole of the Bible story reveals that Jesus is the hero of the Bible. Paul Tripp also notes that speaking the truth in love is not just about confronting people with principles, theology, or solutions. 
It's about confronting people with the God who is active and glorious in grace and truth and who has a rightful claim to our lives. That's how Jesus confronts Martha, with truth in love. The truth about who he is. He confronts her with the gospel. And I want to throw a word of caution in here, though. Speaking the truth in love is not about you. It's not about you. It's not about wielding the gospel as a weapon or an argument to show how smart or spiritual you are. There is no room for smugness or superiority at the foot of the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ destroys pride. The cross of Jesus Christ destroys arrogance and smugness and superiority. And sharing the gospel is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. The third characteristics of a, characteristic of a wonderful counselor, Jesus meets you with tears. Look again at verses 32, just 35. Therefore, when Mary came to where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus, therefore, saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Martha goes back and gets Mary. Mary goes out to see Jesus. I want you to notice that Mary makes the same statement to Jesus that Martha did. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But Jesus doesn't meet her grief with a statement of fact. In fact, the Bible doesn't say that he spoke to her at all. He asked the people, where have you laid him? Then the Bible records one of the shortest verses in the English language. Jesus wept. Can you imagine the Son of God, whom the Bible says is the very agent of creation, weeping? The sovereign one, the holy one, the all-powerful one, the all-knowing one, weeping with one of his beloved children? Mary's heart was broken, and Jesus wept. Uh, I got a quick math lesson for you. How many of you can count to infinity? No one? Sean, you can? That doesn't surprise me. <laughs> um, you probably max out at 999 quintillion, 999 quadrillion, 999 trillion, 999 million, 999,999. But infinity is that times that times that forever, right? But did you know that there are as many fractions between zero and one than there are numbers from one to infinity? Between zero and one can be chopped up infinitely. This little illustration is a reminder that our God is ultimately infinite. He's also infinitely intimate. He's ultimately infinite and infinitely intimate. The God who stoops, the psalm says, God stoops to look down upon the heavens and the earth. 
He's also as near as the air you breathe. Psalmist described him as a very present help in trouble. As Christians in relational ministry, we need to weep with those who weep. To simply be present as the hands and feet of Jesus with someone in their time of need. If you've read the story of Job, you remember that after Job had lost his livelihood and his children and even his health, he's sitting in ashes, scraping his wounds with a broken piece of pottery. And his three friends come to him. They weep with him and they sit with him for seven days and nights before they ever utter a word. It's when they opened their mouth that everything <laughs> went, went sour. But a story was once told that uh, during Queen Victoria's reign, she heard that the wife of a common laborer had lost her baby. Having experienced deep sorrow herself, she felt moved to express her sympathy. So she called on the bereaved woman and went and spent time with her one day. After she left, the neighbors asked, what, the, what did the queen say to you? She said, nothing. She simply put her hands on mine and we silently wept together. See, truth without tears is mean. And tears without truth is empty. But Jesus offers both. Jesus is perfect in the ministry of truth and tears. He is full of grace and truth. The Greek word here for wept is defined as weeping quietly. This was in contrast to the professional mourners who had come to console Martha and Mary. It was in that culture that, that people would come and you had to have a certain number of people to weep and wail when someone died. Um, and so they were there wailing while Jesus was weeping quietly. Jesus was weeping because of the damage that sin had done and what he would endure in order to destroy that sin. The well-known hymn, My Savior's Love, says, For me it was in the garden. He prayed, not my will, but thine. He had no tears for his own grief, but sweat drops of blood for mine. Even knowing he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead and what joy that would bring, he was still grieved over the effects of the sin. Jesus looked through the joy to the coming sorrow so that we can look through our circumstances, through our trials, through our pain at the coming joy. And the fourth characteristic of the wonderful counselor is the one that makes Jesus utterly unique. The three other characteristics can be shared with earthly counselors. We can love others. We can tell the truth. We can cry with those who, we can weep with those who weep and those only make for decent counselors, right? But this one makes Jesus truly wonderful. Jesus raises the dead. Ken Johnson's a good counselor, but he's never raised the dead. Not that I know of. Okay. Picking up in verse 38, Jesus being again deeply moved within came to the tomb now, it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been in there four days. Jesus said, Did I not say 
that if you believe, you will see the glory of God. So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings. His face was wrapped around with cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is arguably the most dramatic and climactic miracle in Jesus' ministry. He commands Lazarus to come out of the grave. Lazarus, dead for four days, stinking, rotting in the grave, comes out of the grave, still bound in his grave clothes. Jesus orders him unbound and set free. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he would validate his teaching with miracle. In one instance, he told a paralytic man that his sins were forgiven. And knowing that the religious leaders of the time would question his authority to forgive sin because only God can forgive sin, he told the paralytic to take up his mat and walk. And walk. What Jesus is doing here by raising Lazarus from the dead is this. Everything Jesus has said is absolutely true. And it was true whether or not he actually called forth Lazarus. But in order to confirm that truth in their hearts and in yours, he calls forth a dead man from the grave. He calls forth Lazarus Lazarus, to transform a group of onlookers, a group of observers, into a group of believers. The resurrection of Lazarus was also a foreshadowing of Jesus' own resurrection. When after three days in the tomb, after being bruised and beaten and torn and nailed to a cross and laying down his life for the sins of the world, by the power of God, he was raised to life again and is seated at the right hand of God where he's praying for you now. His resurrection vindicated his death. He said that he would go to the cross so that all who would believe in him would have eternal life. And if he had died in vain, there would be an occupied tomb in Jerusalem right now that might read, Here lies Jesus of Nazareth, who claimed to be the Messiah. There's no such tomb. The tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. Everything he said is true, whether you like it or not, whether you like it or not, is not important. The only important thing is, is Jesus alive? Because if he is alive, then everything he said is true, and everything he said is binding on our hearts. Why is this important? Because, like Lazarus, you also were dead. You were a stinking, rotting corpse placed there because you were born in sin. Thanks to our first parents, Adam and Eve, who hardened their hearts toward God and ate the forbidden fruit, we are all born in sin and guilt. We are all natural-born sinners and enemies of God. We are all born dead. We may walk and talk, but we are dead And unless Jesus raises you, you remain dead. Unless he calls you 
out of darkness into his glorious light, you remain in your sin. So maybe you're here asking, how can I be saved? Simple. Be raised from the dead. Believe that you're a sinner and dead in your sin. Believe that Jesus was pierced, that he bled and died to take away your sin. And believe that he was raised from the dead, confirming all that he said was true. Place your trust in his finished work on the cross. Build your life on the solid rock of Jesus and come out of the grave and follow him. I want you to notice in conclusion something very interesting about what Jesus does not say to Martha or Mary. He never explains to them why he allowed Lazarus to die. He doesn't tell them why he allowed Lazarus to stay in the grave four days. We know on this side of the story that he waited so that no one could possibly make the argument that Lazarus wasn't really dead. He was really, really dead. But Jesus doesn't tell Martha and Mary Lazarus' story. He tells them their story. And he tells you your story today. You know, C.S. Lewis wrote in the Chronicles of Narnia series that no one has told any story but their own. Jesus doesn't help Martha or Mary make sense of Lazarus' death. He tells them that he is life and resurrection. And Jesus may not help you make sense of your circumstances. He may not help you make sense of your sorrow. But he meets you where you are. He weeps with you. He declares himself to you as the resurrection and the life and the only one who will truly delight and satisfy you in this life and the life to come. So I leave you with the same question that Jesus asked Martha. Do you believe? It makes all the difference in the world. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I pray that you would multiply, interpret, apply the teaching of your word to our hearts. Or that we would love others. We would tell forth the gospel. That we would weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. And share the ultimate news that Jesus is alive. We have a living hope today because Jesus is alive. We have an inheritance today that can never spoil, perish, or fade because Jesus is alive. Everything he said is true. I pray that there, if there is someone here today who needs to come out of the grave, that you would reach in and grab them and pull them out. But by your grace, speak to their hearts, draw them that they would repent and believe this glorious gospel. They would build their lives on the solid rock of Christ Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.